Sambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast, bringing you true crime from around the world. Hi, I'm your host, Sambo. Grab a beer as you do. Pull up your deck chair. Ah, this is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi, Islanders. I hope you're all well. Now, just before we get into today's case, hasn't the Gabby Petito murder become surreal? I mean, my YouTube uh, feed has uncovered more true crime channels than I ever thought existed. So many, though, are really just clickbaiting for clout, for listeners, for followers. But there are a few out there that you might want to check out and leave the rest alone. Now, I have mentioned this before, but search for Gavin Fish. He's got a great channel, and he's not just doing it for the clout. And the other channel, channel I always think is very respectful in the true crime uh, uh, true crime space is Stephanie Harlow. So that's Harlow, H-A-R-L-O-W-E. She does a really good Halloween month as well, so you might want to check that out. Now, both these channels, as I said, will do a proper job on the case. As more info comes in, they'll update it. They research their information well, and they're very respectful to those involved, especially Gabby, her family, and their friends. Now, a lot of people have talked about the missing white girl syndrome and how those that are more marginalised or not newsworthy, they just don't get the same coverage. Well, then please maybe go to my dear friend Nina Instead's podcast, Already Gone, now where she covers those other cases. Also check out Missing in Michigan's Facebook page. For the last couple of years, I've done their annual video presentation for them. Maybe you can help out if you know something about those missing people. So there are lots of resources out there if you have a look. You've got to think also every jurisdiction I know has some sort of missing persons register. You can always just go and search that out and see if you can help in your own local area. So let's get into it. Last episode, we covered Gary Ridgway, who had 49 convictions and confessed to 20 or so more murders. Because those he chose to murder were the most vulnerable in society, the streetwalkers, drug users, the runaways. Those that when and if they were reported missing, if they were at all reported missing at all, their cases just seemed to fade away. Well, tonight we have a perpetrator in the same vein, someone who would amass double Ridgeway's body count. Now, it's Samuel Little. And he was killing those he knew no one in the general population would hear about in the news or no one would notice missing. Interestingly, one of Little's Jane Doe victims was identified just the other day. But we'll get to that later. Okay, so my references tonight are the Tallahassee Democrat, the News Star, Biography.com, Oxygen.com, APNews.com, Kiro, that's K-I-R-O-7, the New York Times, Washington Post, the Sun-Herald of Mississippi, and FBI Files Plus Court Records. Okay, so let's get straight into it. Now, Samuel Little, also known some places as Samuel McDowell, he was born on June the 7th, 1940, 
with Little saying that his mother was a teenage prostitute and abandoned him to be raised by his granny in Lorraine, Ohio. In fact, it's believed he was born while his mother was in jail. Now, I know this is a thing with what you call people. Now, if someone has stated the word prostitute, I will tend to use the word prostitute. If sex worker isn't the word to use either, I may use walk the a lady that walks the street for money from that Roxanne song by police to try and be as respectful as I can and put it in its own place. Like I said, I don't consider someone whose pimp drugs them out and forces them out onto the street to get money for him as a sex worker. That's more a slave than a sex worker. So just bear with me because it'll be mixed up in and out of here and I hope you understand. Please email me if you've got any views on that as well. Okay. So, Little, he didn't do well at school and eventually he dropped out. He began his criminal career with theft and he ended up in juvie. Now, as we know, getting thrown in juvie, especially years ago, is probably the worst place to put young potential criminals. But I guess what else are you going to do with these repeat offenders? Now, by the 50s, Little roamed the country. Offences for fraud and driving under the influence were just some of the lesser crimes he committed. But his stealing escalated to assault, armed robbery, and he was now raping or at least attempting to rape women as well. A dark, violent streak was emerging as Little committed his crimes. He would commit crimes, then move on to another county, another state. Sometimes police were actually happier for him to leave town than to try and prosecute him. By the mid-70s, Little racked up more than 25 arrests in 11 states, doing over a decade in prison. However, Little would eventually confess to having murdered at least 10 women by this time, stating that he flew under the radar because, I never killed no senators or governors or fancy New York journalists. Nothing like that. I stayed in the ghettos. Now, this is so true. If Gabby and Laundry had been strung out meth users living in a crack house, we would never have heard of her going missing. Now, it's pretty 100% true. In 1976, at Sunset Hill, St. Louis County, drug user Pamela K. Smith ran to a house half naked with her hands bound behind her back, banging on the door for help, She told police when they came, it wasn't the police station, it was a house, they called the cops, that man had picked her up, choked her, then beaten and raped her before she escaped. Little was picked up for this, but told police that she was lying and that he only beat her. Now, he would be convicted of assault with the intent to rape. Now, for that assault, he was only sentenced to three months in county jail. That's right. I think you'll find a theme with Samuel Little in these tiny little sentences. Anyway, Little would be picked up for the murder of 22-year-old Melinda Rose LaPree in 1982. Melinda had been missing since September the 16th and witnesses told investigators that they'd seen her get into Little's car, never to be seen alive again. Now, her body was found by a man mowing in the cemetery at Oak Street and US 90 in Gordia, Mississippi, on October the 4th. You can Google that address. She's been, 
She'd been beaten, raped and strangled to death and just dumped naked at the cemetery. Now, Little came to notice by police when they spotted a car similar to the type that Melinda had gotten into, a Pinto station wagon with wood grain side panels on it. I mean, that wouldn't be hard to spot. Little had been on a crime spree with his girlfriend, Aurelia Dorsey, and another unnamed guy. Now, the unnamed guy was unnamed in the documents I got because he was actually providing evidence. Now, they'd been on a shoplifting spree. They were selling stuff from the back of their car. Now, Little would be investigated for Melinda's murder. However, the grand jury failed to indict him because the witnesses were deemed to be untrustworthy. You know why? Because they were sex workers who told police they'd been beaten and strangled by Little in the same manner. However, Little at the time had been indicted in Florida for the murder, another murder of 26-year-old mentally challenged woman, Patricia Ann Mount. So the cops sort of thought, well, let's just extradite him. He'll get sorted out over there. He was extradited and he faced trial. Now, he would be acquitted of Patricia's murder in January of 1984 because the witnesses who saw Little with her at the bar that on the night she was murdered They were deemed untrustworthy by the jury as they'd all been drinking. Jesus. How about that, Islanders? If you murdered someone, got investigated and charged, how would you feel if you were the murderer when you got off free to roam the streets? Two murder raps, just like that. It just boggles the mind. But I suppose for Little, at this stage, he'd murdered so many women and had gotten away with it at at this stage. He's already murdered a stack of women. This was just a normal part of life. To be actually investigated for the murders and to get away with it was... The investigation part was more of a nuisance to him than anything else. His body count, right, at this stage, by the end of 1984, was more than 40 that's more than Ridgeway already. And he's only been investigated for two. I'm getting, I'm starting to get the rage already. He's got thousands and thousands of words to go. But with his MO, it's rape, murder, leave town, and police not really investigating these dead women properly. Little's just getting away with it. Now, Little did train as a boxer and he would beat the women and strangle them. What he'd do, he'd really hit them as hard as he could on the back of the head or somewhere and that would just stun them or knock them out. Now, as these women were often drug addicted or streetwalkers, their deaths were often attributed to an overdose or something else rather than a homicide. So it's not like there's 40 unsolved murder cases out there at the moment. Most of these, the majority aren't even seen as homicides. They're just seen as, oh, drug addict, dead on the ground. Yep, we'll just call that a overdose. So we're at 1984, the night of 24th of September. Laurie Barros, 22, is walking to her friend's apartment when Little approached from behind, put her in a chokehold and then dragged her into his car. Little said that he'd purchased $150 worth of cocaine earlier that evening. He drove to a deserted lot near the freeway near the freeway that people had been using as an illegal dumping site. Little pulled Laurie into the car's back seat by the neck and shoulders. When he began forcibly kissing her, Laurie tried to push him away. But that 
to her, she said, that appeared to piss him off. And his right hand went right around her neck. He began to choke her. She said, one hand all the way around with his thumb right in the middle and started controlling my ability to breathe. She asked him not to hurt her and she said she'd cooperate if he wanted to rape her. Little said he didn't want to hurt her and to trust him and that he loved her. Little pulled off Laurie's nylons, her underpants and shoes. He used the nylons to tie her hands behind her back. Laurie said she'd experimented with prostitution, that's her words, but that she was not engaging in sex work that night. Now, Little got on top of Laurie and choked her again until she passed out. Now, when she regained consciousness, she was gurgling, sputtering to get some air. And she asked him again, don't hurt me, I'll cooperate, don't hurt me. Now, Little ignored that request and he then asked her to swallow. She said he liked to feel it when I swallowed while his thumb was over my neck. Now, he did this several times. Now, when Laurie regained consciousness, she tried to scream, but no sound came out because of the pain in her throat. Now, Little pulled his penis out of his pants. He was erect at that time, and he pulled her body up toward his penis and was rubbing it against her. And then it all of a sudden went limp, and he wasn't able to actually have sex with her. Now, this made Little angry, and again he choked Laurie into unconsciousness. The next thing she remembers was being pushed out of Little's car onto a heap of trash. Little then got on top of her with his knees on her chest and choked her again until she lost consciousness a final time. When at the last she awoke, Laurie discovered that her bra had been lifted up over her chest. She believed Little had probably done this while she was unconscious. Little would say that she sat still as a board and pretended to be dead because she was scared to death that he was still there watching her, that he was going to come back and realise that she wasn't dead and choke her some more. So she sat there for at least 30 minutes on the ground in the exact position that he'd left her, in just in amongst all the trash. Laurie then got up and walked until she found a payphone and called a friend to pick her up. Now she would be treated at hospital and Laurie at first was reluctant to report the incident to police but her friends encouraged her to do this and she ended up filing a report. Now Laurie characterised her encounter with little, little this way. I really knew this wasn't about rape. It wasn't about assault. It was about death, power and control. Whether or not I was going to live. On October 25th, 1984, at around 4.50am, San Diego Police Department officer Louis Tamangi, Tamani and his partner Wayne Spees were on patrol at a marked, in a marked police car with their lights off. They were driving near an abandoned lot known for stolen vehicles, prostitution and narcotics use. They travelled a short distance along a dirt road and came across a vehicle matching the description of the car used in connection with the attack on Laurie. It was the exact same spot. They turned on all their patrol's car's lights almost immediately. A large black male exited. Tamani identified the man as Little, who was zipping up his pants, appeared to be very nervous. He kept looking at us, he said. He kept looking at the car, kept looking at us, kept looking at the car. When the officers asked him to come over, Little said, It's nothing. It's just my wife and we're fighting. The officers told him to come over and talk to him. 
As Little approached, Tamani could see bloody scratches on his neck. Tamani told Spees to stay with Little while he went to check out Little's car. When Tamani shone his flashlight into the car, he saw a naked woman. She would be later identified as Tonya Jackson in the back seat. Now, one leg was up over the seat. The other leg was on the rear passenger seat in the rear of the car. Her upper torso and her head were crammed down on the floorboard between the seat portion of the driver's seat and the seat portion of the rear seat. He said, I saw a black bra, not attached, but on her chest. Her lips and mouth were bloody. It looked like she'd been punched or beaten. Tamani saw bruises on her face and neck. Tonya was motionless and unresponsive. Her eyes were rolled back into her head and she was just gulping and gasping for air. The officers arrested Little and called for an ambulance. The officers then rendered first aid to Tonya who told them that Little had raped her. Shortly thereafter, paramedics arrived and transported Tonya to the hospital where she was treated for her injuries. Marvin Lee Shaw, a San Diego police officer, tried to interview Tonya in the trauma unit. He said Tonya was in somewhat a state of shock. She was in and out of consciousness. She had difficulty speaking. There was bruising on her neck, her left arm and chest and face area. Her eyes had broken blood vessels. She also had bruises on the inner thighs and the pelvic region and near her vagina. As Little was being transported by police officers to a hospital for examination, he said, That bitch didn't give me my money's worth. She's going to give it to me or else. Now, Little said he'd met Tonya at a bar in downtown San Diego where she agreed to perform a sex act for 20 bucks. He said she directed him to the location where the officers discovered him. They got into the back seat of Little's car and Tonya started playing with it. Little told Officer Tamani that he wanted more and she refused. And Little told Tamani that he told her that she wasn't going anywhere till he got my pussy. Little said he grabbed her in self-defence and she deserved it. She cheated him. While the officers were driving him to jail, Little asked several times, How's a bitch? Is she going to make it? Little was charged for both of the attacks, attempted murder, rape, assault with intent to cause great bodily injury and other related sexual charges. A San Diego trial arising out of the Laurie Barris incident ended up in a mistrial, after which Little pled guilty to aggravated assault against Laurie and aggravated assault against Tonya in another trial. In this plea deal, guess what he got? He got four years. And guess what? He was out after two and a half. I mean, what What the fucking fuck? This, this is just incredible. Laurie Barris would go on to get her shit together, study psychology and criminal justice and have a family. Now, years later, when she would end up testifying against Little, she would have to tell her kids of her past life as a sex worker. Mm. So, when he's back on the streets, guess what he does? Well, let's get into it. We'll fast forward now to, this is a couple of years, to 1987, and it'll be the murder of Carol Linda Alford. You may see her name as Linda Alford or Alford or Carol Alford or Alford. All depends on the spelling. So we're going to call her Carol Linda Alford. That's what I got on the FBI files. 
On July 13, 1987, Los Angeles Police Department officer Daryl Lee and his partner responded to a call about a dead body lying in an alleyway behind a residence on East 27th Street. Upon arriving at the location, the officer observed the body of an African-American woman naked from the waist down with her shirt pulled up over a bra. She was wearing only one sock and no shoes. None of her missing clothing was found in the alley. Lee noticed drag marks in the dirt near the woman's feet. It appeared to Lee that the woman had been killed elsewhere and her body then dumped in the alley. The dead woman was later identified as Linda Alford by her daughter. The autopsy revealed that the cause of death was asphyxia as a result of manual strangulation. Alford had sustained multiple bruises near her jawline, hemorrhages in and around her eyes and scratches and abrasions to her neck, some of which were caused by fingernails. Hemorrhaging beneath her scalp and temporal area was characteristic of a blunt injury, a blow or a bump to the head, and was consistent with Alford having been punched in the head. The autopsy revealed hemorrhaging to Alford's voice box and hyoid bone. All of these injuries had been caused prior to death and a toxicology report showed that she had consumed alcohol and cocaine prior to her death. Now, a month later, Audrey Nelson is murdered and her body is found just a couple of miles away from Carroll's. On August the 14th, 1989, former Los Angeles Police Department Detective Richard Santiago and his partner responded to a call about a homicide at a parking lot between a not, behind a nightclub and restaurant located in 2019 East 7th Street. Inside a dumpster, they found the body of a Caucasian woman naked from the waist down with her sweatshirt pulled up around her shoulders. The back of her body had dirt and her upper shoulder had some drag marks. A search of the vicinity recovered no identification, clothing or any other personal belongings associated with the victim, who was later identified as Audrey Nelson. Crime scene photographs showed drag marks on Nelson's back, buttocks and heels. Detective San Diego opined that Nelson had definitely been murdered elsewhere and her body subsequently dumped at the scene. A medical examiner who performed the autopsy, Dr Eugene Carpenter, concluded that the cause of death was strangulation. Nelson had suffered a significant bruising around the front of her neck, which included fractures to the thyroid cartilage and hyoid bone, severe hemorrhaging to the throat muscles and fingernail marks on the right side of her throat. The amount of force required to sustain such injuries was considerable and the strangulation appeared to have been done by hand. Injuries throughout her body revealed pre-death blunt force trauma consistent with having been punched repeatedly in the head. She suffered severe bruising underneath her skin. Now this bruising extended to her chest muscles, stomach and abdomen. In addition, the hard bone of her spine was crushed during a blow to the upper central abdomen with deep bruising to the stomach itself was a sign of a considerable force. Now, abrasion on her back, abdomen, sides, knees and thighs were characteristic of road burns, that is, having been dragged across a hard surface probably prior to death. A toxicology report revealed the presence of cocaine in her blood, which probably most of the population had it as well. Carpenter said, These signs of force are the greatest that I've seen in a 27-year practice in a county that has its share of strangulation cases. This stands out because of the amount of hemorrhage at the throat, 
the fractures and the fact that there's no petechial hemorrhages, which is a sign that even the arteries were occluded, not just the veins, which is the usual course of events. Carpenter also testified that there's a special injury to the front part of the neck. This is a patent injury. He explained that it was an injury consisting of abrasions, but it has a patent to it, so it's consistent with maybe a belt buckle or brass ring in a strap or something like that. It's non-specific, but it's got structure, and so it was measured just in case there would be some sort of comparison later. Then just three weeks after Audrey's murder, Guadalupe Apodaca would be found dead just a mile from where Carol was found and not far from where Audrey was found. On September the 3rd, 1989, Los Angeles Police Department officer Jesse Soltero responded to a call about a homicide at an abandoned auto repair shop at 4316 South Ascot Avenue where a body had been discovered. The body was naked from the waist down and lay in the interior of the garage area among debris. There was a white shoe near the body but no other clothing or identification at the scene. Officer Soltero observed bruises on the dead woman's neck and abrasions on her buttocks. The victim was subsequently identified as Guadalupe Apodaca. The medical examiner, Christopher Rogers, determined that Apodaca died as a result of manual strangulation. She had sustained abrasions and bruising to her neck and around her throat, fractures to her larynx and hyoid bone, tiny points of bleeding on the eyelids and whites of her eyes, bruises around her eyes and nose and laceration on her lower lip. These injuries were consistent with significant pressure having been applied to her neck. Bruising on her tongue suggested that Apodaca had bitten down on it while suffering a seizure during the strangulation process. Abrasions on her neck had curvatures characteristic of fingernail marks. Bruising on her chest was consistent with someone having kneeled there while strangling her. Bruises and abrasions on her right leg and around her knees were consistent with her body having been dragged prior to death. Bruises to Apodaca's forehead and around her eyes were consistent with blunt force trauma having been inflicted on her face and head. She'd likely suffered a sexual assault as well, based on evidence in those areas. A toxicology test revealed the presence of cocaine and alcohol in her blood. Rogers testified that he'd also reviewed the autopsy reports from the Nelson and Orford deaths. And he noted the following similarities. In each case, the deceased person was a woman of a particular age between 35 and 46. They'd all been strangled manually. They all had blunt trauma in addition to the strangulation. Each of them was nude from the waist down when they were originally found. The decedents were all found in South Central Los Angeles. Like I said, they're all in the same small area. They all had cocaine in their blood. (laughs) Like I said, I think most people in Los Angeles at those times had cocaine in their blood and two of them had alcohol, which again... I'm sure most people were drinking most nights. I think the medical examiner was starting to think there's a serial killer here. Okay, now we fast forward to April 2012, where Los Angeles Police Department Detective Mitzi Roberts was assigned to the Cold Case Homicide Unit. That was formed in 2001. Now, this unit was charged with investigating Los Angeles homicides that had remained unsolved for five years. At the time, there were more than 9,000 such cases. Roberts said, We were mostly looking at rape kits, things with biological evidence. 
As the years went on, as forensics improved, we started looking at clothing, pulling the same old cases, looking at clothing and fingernails. And it's just, like she said, it's still an evolving science and they can start to look at other things as everything improves. Roberts noticed, though, that similarities between the Alford, Nelson and Apodaca killings, they all appeared to be what she would classify as body dumps. They were all partially clothed, most of them on having clothing from only the waist up. They were all women. They were all very close to each other as far as the crime scenes or where the bodies were located. The cause of death was manual strangulation. They all appeared to have suffered some sort of beating, and the bodies had all been found within a five-mile radius of each other. Alford and Apodaca's body had been discovered just a mile and a half from each other. In April 2012, Roberts began to conduct a background investigation of Little. Now, she determined that he'd been living in the South Los Angeles area during the period of 87 to 89. Now, when she learned that Little was presently in custody in Kentucky, she sent detectives there to interview him and obtain oral swabs to be used for DNA comparison. LA Police Department Detective Susan Atanucci, another member of the Cold Case Unit, she went to Louisville in September 2012 to meet with Little and obtain these buccal samples for DNA testing. Now, Little told her that during the years of 87 to 90, he had been living in San Diego and South Central LA. Little also said that he was a boxer, a middleweight prize fighter. Now, when Atanusi showed Little photographs of Nelson and Apodaca, he said he'd never seen them in his life and he was pretty adamant about it. Little told Atanusi that he was impotent and therefore he couldn't be with anyone. However, he also said that he could ejaculate and produce sperm. Little was subsequently extradited to Los Angeles. Now, LA Police Department Detective Jorge Morales said said that on October 19, 2012, he was one of the officers who escorted Little back to California from Dallas, Texas. Morales described Little as a big guy, about 5'11", and I believe 235 pounds was the weight that we used when we booked him in. Now, while they were passing through LA International Airport, Little spotted a young Hispanic woman at the terminal and said, Look at that ass. I'd like to get me some of that and get in between those legs and lick that pussy. Such a charming guy. Little was charged on January 7th, 2013 with the murders of Carol Linda Alford, Audrey Nelson and Guadalupe Apodaca. At trial, there would not only be DNA evidence linking Little to their murders, but there was also witness evidence from women that had survived attacks from him. DNA analyst Amanda Mendoza from Bode Technology Laboratory testified in 2012 that she tested a sexual assault kit and clothing, which was a bra and a t-shirt, from Alford, which was compared to DNA from Alford's blood and DNA from a buccal swab taken from inside Little's cheek. Now, semen was detected on Alford's shirt. The epithelial fraction of the shirt sample contained a mixture of DNA from Alford and Little. There was no evidence of DNA from a third person. The sperm fraction from Alford's T-shirt DNA sample matched DNA from Little. Now, Little is African-American, as I said before. So, Mendoza testified that the odds of this match were 1 in 450 quintillion African-Americans. She said it would take approximately 64 billion planet Earths 
to find this DNA profile one time. The right and left cup brassiere areas, they contained a mixture of three or more persons, including Alford and at least one male contributor. Now, the male contributor's DNA profile was consistent with Little's profile. Mendoza testified that epithelial cells are any cells found in the body, whether it's from blood, saliva, urine, sweat or skin cells. All of that are considered epithelial cells. Now, if you want to know what a quintillion is, that's one followed by 18 zeros. It's a lot. In 2011 and 2012, Molly Megaheed, a DNA analyst at Cellmark Forensics, she received a sexual assault kit and a fingernail kit relating to the death of Audrey Nelson. The fingernail kit contained both scrapings and clippings. DNA analysis of the sperm fraction taken from the sexual assault kit vaginal swab matched Nelson and an unknown male. Little was excluded as a possible contributor. Now, DNA analysis of the fingernail scrapings were inconclusive due to an insufficient amount of DNA. Fingernail clippings from Nelson's right hand contained a mixture from Nelson and an unknown male. The fingernail clippings from Nelson's left hand, however, tested positive for blood and were found to contain DNA from both Nelson and Little. Again, the odds of this male DNA being someone else other than Little were 1 in 58.68 quadrillion. Now, a quadrillion is a one followed by 15 zeros. Jennifer Sampson, a DNA analyst at Bow Technology, testified that Little's profile matched the major contributor to the DNA found on two shirt cuttings taken from Apodaca's body. The probability of these matches in the United States African-American population was respectively 1 in 1.6 quadrillion and 1 in 450 quintillion. As I said before, there were witnesses that survived being attacked by Little. They also testified at his trial. There was Hilda Nelson. Hilda testified that on 31st of July 1980, she was living in Carver Village, a housing project in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Hilda worked as a, as she says, a prostitute to support herself and her children. Across the street from where she lived was The Front, It was a strip of nightclubs, pool halls and other businesses. She was inside one of the nightclubs when Little approached and greeted her, saying he remembered her from when she worked at the shipyard. Now, Hilda had worked at the shipyard but testified that she didn't remember Little from working there. Hilda told Little she was looking for a date. That means to get paid for sex. He asked how much and she replied $50. After she drank a beer that he bought for her, they went to Hilda's apartment to have sex. But as soon as they got inside and Hilda closed the apartment door, Little punched her in the back of the head and started choking her. Hilda lost consciousness. She woke up lying in a bed with Little kneeling on the bed and holding her down as he continued to choke her and hit her in the face. She lost consciousness again and woke up naked in her bathtub. It was full of water and Little had tied a scarf around her neck. Little repeatedly pulled her up by the scarf and then pushed her head under the water. As Hilda tried to fight back, Little continued punching her in the face. She thought he was trying to kill her. Hilda eventually passed out for a third time. When Hilda's friend and fellow streetwalker Dolores knocked on her bedroom window and called out a name to check her well-being, Little responded by saying, She's taking care of business. When Hilda next regained consciousness, she was in the hospital. 
She spent three days being treated for her injuries. Hilda had suffered numerous scratches and bruises over her face, neck and chest area. Her throat hurt so much that she couldn't talk and her eyes were bloodshot. Now, she didn't tell the authorities what had actually happened, but instead told them she'd been the victim of a home invasion. In November 82, Hilda was contacted by Pasigula police and she then told them what really happened. Hilda went to the police station and wrote out a statement. They showed her a set of photographs and she identified little. She later went to court to testify against him when she was eight months pregnant. When she got to the witness stand and saw Little, she got scared and wet her pants. As a result, she didn't testify and was released from her subpoena. There was Lila McLean. In 1981, Lila was living in Pascagoula, Mississippi. I'm sure that's how you pronounce it. Lila testified that she had two residences, one in Carver Village where she was taking care of business and one at Regency Woods Apartment where she lived with her three children. Her business was walking the street for money. On November the 19th, 1981, Lila was walking along the street when Little parked his car, approached her and asked, do you date? Now, Linda understood this to mean, do you prostitute? And confirmed that she did and said the price was $50. Lila said she lived right around the corner, but Little said, no, we're going to the Shamrock Hotel. They got into his car, but when Lila told Little to turn around because he'd driven past the hotel, Little replied, I don't need to turn around for what I want to do to you. He suddenly punched her in the back of the head and then between the eyes. He stopped the car, continued punching her, and then began choking the life out of her. Lila tried to defend herself by scratching, kicking, and biting him. Lila managed to escape from the car a few times, but Little caught her each time and threw her back inside. Lila testified, This man was so quick he could catch me before I could get from here to here, from the station wagon and drag me back. At one point, there was a guy came on a bicycle, a little white boy come by on a bicycle, and he asked me, did I need some help? And I couldn't say nothing because at this time I couldn't talk. Finally, Lila managed to climb through a small window at the back of Little's car and escape by running through highway traffic, just going through the traffic wearing just a pair of shorts. Now, ultimately, someone took her to the hospital. Now, she said the police never came to the hospital to interview her, and at that time, she didn't go to the police either. In 1982, Pascagoula police officers took her to the station and questioned her about this incident. She told them she'd been attacked by Little and identified him in a photo array. She subsequently went with Hilda to a court hearing, but they, as she says didn't get a chance to talk to anyone because Hilda Hilda urinated all over herself. When Hilda left the court, Lila walked home with her. When they told Hilda to go, I left with her because I felt like they weren't going to do nothing. No way. Now, Little didn't testify in his own defence in this trial. Little would be convicted by the jury of three counts of first-degree murder with a multiple murder special circumstance. The trial court sentenced him to three consecutive terms of life without the possibility of parole. But that's not the end of it. Many more cases, including the Melinda LaPree murder from 1982 in Pascagoula, Mississippi, that the grand jury failed to indict him on, well, they started looking at that as well. But then little, he started confessing to multiple murders that he said he had committed since the early 70s. 
One of these murders was the 1995 murder of Denise Christie Brothers in Odessa, Texas. Little pleaded guilty to the murder of Denise and received another life sentence, his fourth. Now, Little would be indicted on several more murders, but bizarrely, he ended up confessing, and get this, to a total of 93 murders, one of which another guy was doing time for. Now, while the FBI were interviewing Little, he drew pictures of many of these women, and the FBI have them on their website in the hope of identifying them as the majority of Little's victims are unknown. Now, please check out the site. You never know. You might be able to identify one of his victims. Little died on December 30, 2020 in a Los Angeles County area hospital. He was 80 years old. Now, just the other day in late September, another of Little's believed victims was identified. So this is just a few weeks ago. On December the 27th, 1977, Mississippi hunters stumbled upon the skeletal remains of a woman who became known as Escatorpa Jane Doe. Jackson County authorities have used DNA and genetic genealogy to identify the slain woman as Clara Birdlong. Clara, who was 44 in 77, is believed to be one of Samuel Little's victims. So, Islanders, what do you think of this case? Little seemed to be able to either get out of charges or get very little sentences at the start. Nothing stopped him murdering women, but as I said before, if he was murdering 22-year-old white college girls, I'm sure he would have been locked away decades before he got his life sentences. What is amazing is that so many of the murders he confessed to were put down as drug overdoses. They weren't even considered murders as the victims were drug addicted or they walked the street. I suppose for police it's an easy way to close off a case. No one's really going to care. Just like Gary Ridgway, the Green River serial killer from last episode. Little knew if he preyed on streetwalkers or drug addicts, runaways, he stood a very high chance of getting away with his crimes. He also moved from state to state, as he also knew that different police departments would be investigating the crimes and linking them would be almost impossible. But DNA technology caught up with him in the end and karma came around and bit him. Still... He was 72 when he was finally arrested. So he basically got away with murder. That's it for this week, Islanders. Another crazy case. Just this guy seems to just kill women and just get away with it. It, Like Ridgeway, it's just they almost expect to get away with it and they're doing nothing special. They're not like... The Dexter, I always bring up Dexter, putting up kill rooms and all this sort of stuff. They're not doing any of that. They're just going out, picking someone up off the street and killing them. Do it again the next week, whenever they want. Absolutely amazing. Anyway, that's the end of this episode. I'd like to thank my patrons past and present for keeping the island's lights on. Special thanks to all my patrons. Thank you so much. Especially the recent ones. I'm not sure if I mentioned Fen the Goblin last week. What a great name. Xander Grace Lillian McLeod. I think you gave me a PayPal the other week as well. Shamita Singh, Holly and Rick Smith, they up their pledge. And the longtime lovely listener, Libby Loudell, Boomvagalunga. If you'd like to throw a dollar my way, please check out patreon.com forward slash True Crime Island. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash True Crime Island. 
Free beer is always nice after the dumpster diving into these cases. And so much thanks to Richard Nickel, who shouted me some beer this week via PayPal. Boom, fuck longer, Richard. Here's some. I'm just going to take a swig now. My throat is so dry. But can I just ask that you take the time to share the podcast with your friends or even in groups on Facebook, whatever. The Island is one of the few truly independent true crime podcasts out there and commercial free. Now, because of the straight up nature of how I bring the show to you, this doesn't go well for Apple algorithms and such. So I do rely on your help in getting the word out there. Best of all, it's free of charge to help the island out. You can go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream each episode if you don't even want to use that iTunes or your pod player. Just go straight to my website. You can download it even for later. I've got links to some merch, social media, all that sort of stuff as well. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me. That's always the best way, especially if you've got any cases or links you want to give me. If you send me an email, they're all in one spot. They're not in some messenger thing, whatever. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Fuck a long day.